The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to be with everyone here in the room and everyone on Zoom. And uh, many of you know, but there may be a few new people here today that don't know that we've been learning the Buddha's instructions on mindfulness of breathing, this very complete and I think you could say subtle and sophisticated instruction for really the whole path. And... uh, You know, the Buddha had his deep insight when he was about 35, but then he taught for 45 years, and like us humans, he probably got better at giving instructions, right? Because just because we know something doesn't mean we can tell our kids in a way that they can get, right? Or our friends or whatever. It's a whole different skill set. It's one skill set to understand our own mind and how we create the causes for suffering over and over again within our own heart and mind. And it's another thing to skillfully articulate that in a way that will be useful for others. And so, in my mind, and I think a lot of you know, Buddhist scholars and Dharma teachers um, have the similar feeling that this set of teachings that's found in the Anapanasati Sutta, so that means that the translation of that is just the Buddha's discourse on mindfulness of breathing, you could say. And uh, so we've been um, reflecting on this and studying this now since August, and we're on the last set of instructions. So there are 16 instructions altogether, and we're on the last set of four. So instruction number 13, 14, 15, and 16. And what we did in the guided meditation this morning is just move through the first 12 instructions. And it, you know, it's, there are no guarantees that we're talking, you know, certainly a lifetime of practice, if not, who knows, lifetimes of practice, working you know, like how to relate to the body in a way that isn't neurotic. And one of the common ways to be neurotically relating to the body, this is the first set of four instructions, is to be living our life as if there isn't a body, right? We're just in our head, in our ideas about stuff. And I think there's a line from one of the T.S. Eliot poems, you know, to live a short distance away from our body as if, we're not embodied. So the first set of four instructions is really um, how the mind relates to the body and purifying that relationship so that there's a immediacy and an openness, a kindness, and a fearlessness, and a not forgetting of the body. And then this is something we want to take on the road like all day long doing all the stuff we do in our lives, but even while we're doing that, do we really have to 
Does life require us to be neglectful and unaware of the body? Or can we do everything with that kind, sensitive, embodied awareness? We can, actually, but it takes some training because, you know, it's not any one of our faults. It's kind of our collective wisdom that, you know, in the conditioning process as we get raised, we get infected, you know, with our ancestral ignorance. We don't even need to understand completely how that all works to understand with a lot of confidence that part of what's going on here, you know, in this mind and body, and all of our minds and bodies, is just the rolling, unfolding expression of our ancestral ignorance and neurotic tendencies. It lives on in us. That's why I think it's useful to remind ourselves that it isn't easy being human. Even those of us who have a more relatively privileged existence, enough resources, good enough health, not being mistreated by others, taken advantage of, even that is hard, even when the conditions are favorable. So in a way, with the any spiritual any spiritual process that works would require some kind of shedding or releasing of all of that conditioning. Or maybe, I mean, there are different ways to talk about it, a non-confusion with those habits that have been picked up, those conditioned tendencies that have been picked up. But one way or another... There has to be a transcendence of those habits, not a transcendence of our humanness, but of our fear and our lust and greed and, you know, just neurotic tendencies. Otherwise, you know, the tendency when we um, get caught up in one of those vortexes of greed or hate or distraction, ignorance, disconnection, the tendency is just to want to keep doing it. You know, the obvious example is when we've been binging on some, you know, TV program or whatever, and there's just a little sliver of awareness that arises after episode eight. <laughs> you know, so we're several hours in, like, I, sh- I probably shouldn't be doing this, or this is probably enough. But do you notice what happens in those moments? It's like, it's so unpleasant to stop because we're going to feel what it feels like to have been watching for seven episodes. So it just makes sense to continue because the alternative is to feel what it feels like to be me, having been avoiding being me. There are consequences when we're avoiding being real and open and sensitive, and then we realize how toxic it is to be distracted or caught in some diluted vortex, you know, and and wisdom says, honey, 
time to come home to the present moment. And we, we sense what that's like, and we go, no, 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 I can't do this. So we take another drink, or click, you know, next episode, or keep gabbing with our friend, or whatever we're doing to stay disconnected. We just keep at it. That's why, you know, Buddhist practitioners, we have all kinds of tricks, like we create a ritual of sitting once a day, because then we have to face ourselves, or signing up for a Buddhist retreat that we go to once a year or a couple times a year, because then, you know, the S-H-I-T hits the fan, because there we are, we meet ourselves again. There's a great scene in our cultural heritage, um, Getting the guy's name now. It's amazing. Um, one of our beat poets, um, Kerouac. Jack Kerouac, thanks. <laughs> and uh, there's a famous scene in, in one of his books, journals, you know, where he had this idealistic sense that I just need that seclusion and I'll meet not only myself, but I'll meet the divine. And so he signed up to spend a summer at a fire tower in the Cascade Mountains in the Northwest. And uh, he has a line in, in his book about what I ended up, who I ended up meeting was my old hateful self, right? That's what we meet. We meet our conditioned habits. At least that's what we meet first. We meet those neurotic, toxic, crazy, you know, whatever you want to, that drone on and on, right? We meet that, and we don't want to meet it, so we keep acting out our habits to avoid feeling what it feels like for those habits to be what they are, habits. They're actually, it's not actually, we're not actually meeting ourselves. We're just meeting those habits, which got wound up in a natural and impersonal process they're real, just like weather is real. I mean, it's as real as weather or this room or the trees and the breeze. But it's not personal. It's what it feels like. Having lived the life that's been lived, then it will feel like this when we start to pay attention. And because it often can be really unpleasant, it just superficially seems like I should be feeling this. But, you know, pain, unpleasantness, is just, a, it's kind of a rough or raw information system. Just because something is really unpleasant doesn't mean we shouldn't feel it. It just means it's really unpleasant. And sometimes when things are really unpleasant, it's saying, you know, take your hand away, that's too hot. But sometimes an unpleasant experience is just saying, when you've lived the life you've lived, then it feels like this. So, honey, don't live that way. <laughs> you have lived that way, so there is that natural consequence. It feels like this now. But you don't have to live that way. And so it gives us this inflection point. Okay, I can't run 
from the karma, from the karmic fruits, because what we're feeling right now is the cumulative fruit of having lived, having behaved, having related in the ways that I've been relating, then this is what the result is. It feels like this. But because wisdom can connect the dots, then it goes, oh, okay. Well, having related in another way, what kind of results might I get? Initially, we only know what doesn't work. That having related with a lot of self-centeredness and a lot of greed and a lot of fear and a lot of a deep tendency to be disconnected and to, and to be unaware, then this is what gets set in motion. And when I come back to the present moment, it will feel like this. One of the things, you know, people sometimes ask, okay, Mark, you've been practicing for 40 years. Well, what have you gotten? <laughs> it's actually, I know it sounds self-centered to say it that way, but it's an appropriate question. Because it's really the question of cause and effect. When you practice with some sincerity, what gets set in motion? And one of the things that gets, one of the ways to answer that kind of question is the more I've practiced, the more I'm suspicious of being disconnected because there's always a price to pay. Because like, when I'm disconnected from my life, then what's going to dominate in terms of how I'm relating and the choices I make are just the habits. You know, we're like on autopilot when we're disconnected. When we're not present, we'd say, well, then we're on autopilot. Which just means the predominant habits are what are governing all the choosing, all the ways that we relate. We're just relating based on habit. And so if that, if we are seeing what the result of that is, then we might want to make another choice. So we choose, well, I'll choose to be present because then I'll notice when my mind gravitates back to habit and I'll remember that's a choice. Yeah, the habit, the tendency might be quite strong, but that's just that tug to do it, to relate in this moment in the ways that I've related to similar moments in the past. But it's just the tug. It doesn't actually define things, right? Habits are just tugs in this direction or that direction. And when we're unaware, then the tug determines how things unfold. When we're present with wisdom, then wisdom knows, oh yeah, there's that tug to react to this person in this way, to view this situation in this way to put all these people in this box, you know, to justify hatred in this way, to justify this uh, strong desire in this way, like, oh, I'm going to do that. I know it's not the right thing to do, but I deserve it. Because <laughs> yeah, I had to put up with this, so then in my frame of mind, my deluded, we don't say deluded, but in this ordinary frame of mind that has a lot of momentum, when things have been difficult, I deserve a reward, right? It's like I watch people 
uh, training their dogs. You know, and it's like they sit before crossing the street, they get a little, you know, whatever they give them. And they walk without pulling the leash, go up crossing the street, they get a little. And we get in this dependent, you know, this idea that that's what life is about, pain and reward. It's kind of a limited way, because then, then we're always sort of, first of all, it doesn't line up with reality. <laughs> you know, we're not getting the rewards we always expect. And then what do we do? Well, we feel betrayed. Then we want to give up. And this is like the real, this brings us to that fourth set of four instructions, which is really about the deepest understanding of letting go. Because we can even misuse the idea of letting go. It can just become another should. Oh, I should let go. I shouldn't be attached. What's wrong with me? Why am I still attached? You know, we've been broken up for three years and I still, you know, long to be with that person or whatever it might be. But we want to understand there is a shedding, a letting go, but it isn't something that you or I do, it's something that happens. And it really has, like I mentioned a moment ago, it has to do with something that is really at the heart. Uh, Buddha used the image of heartwood. And he said, you know, people live their lives content with the twigs and the bark and the sapwood. And they forget that what life is about is the heartwood. And what's really at the heart of our practice is this experience of letting go. And it's, and it really is a complete, um, turning of how the mind relates to sense experience, to the world of sense experience, which is our world. We're either relating to it as if it's this complex system of rewards and punishments, and I'm just trying to figure out how it all works so I can master it. I mean, we even do that with our partners. You know, how do I relate to my partner so I get the rewards and not the punishments from this person, from this relationship? How do I relate to food so I get the rewards but not the punishments and every single aspect of our lives. So it's a complete letting go of that way of relating to the world and realizing actually the world isn't here to master reward and punishment, but the world is here to let go of. And letting go is not the same as disappearing you know, a lot of times when people hear a word like emptiness, I use it even in the guided meditation instructions, you might have heard it. Um, emptiness does not mean, it's not the same as annihilation. It's the releasing of the wrong idea, the wrong view, that the world is here to consume in a way that I get the rewards and not the punishments. That's what we think. That's our legacy. In, in a way, it's not even just human legacy. It's kind of our animal 
conditioning legacy. Like to survive is similar to getting the rewards and avoiding the punishments. So we can't deny, it doesn't help, it isn't healthy to deny our animal nature, but we can for sure transform how we relate to our animal nature. We can have a bigger picture that doesn't negate, actually requires an intimacy with our animal human nature. Because otherwise, like if I'm rejecting my animal human nature, then I'm still in the game of reward and punishment. Like, let me try that as a strategy. Let's see what reward it is to imagine being human and being an animal human that I'm not human. Yeah. Like that's my, and, and you kind of, people, we try that. You know, we want lives that don't look very much like an animal. We dress it up. And uh, just, you know, we have like the contemporary design, you know, where things are very clean, right angles, you know, not things you find in nature. And you see how that works. Kind of works. Until it doesn't. Until we feel like we need to put our feet in mud. <laughs> you know, so then we have one of those vacations where we reconnect or something like that. But this process of letting go, we're igniting a natural... Like one of the reasons it can feel a little um, otherworldly, this third tetrad where we're keeping in mind the space of the present moment. And it is a little unworldly because we're purposefully not interested in the activity of the present moment. We're interested in the space of the present moment. So it's like being in the room you know, if I said, okay, $5,000 reward to anybody who could be here now, but just noticing the space of the room, not what's in the space of the room, right? It would take some training, but we could do it. You know, we can, that's, we even talk about that like in just our visual experience of softening the gaze. Like we can look at people but we can be exposed to the visual field, the colors, the shades, right? But we could, it would take some time, some training, but we could train the mind to not be dependent on the particular shape and colors and forms in the room. Same with the auditory experience. There are the particular sounds, the pitch, the whatever, of each sound, but we, we could just be aware of the space in which those sounds are being heard. And we can do the same with the bodily experience of sensation and even of thought. And that's what we've been learning. We've been kind of developing the skill set through the first 12 instructions to cultivate a different way of relating to sense experience. And then with the last four, what we're doing is the Buddha has distilled what 
when I keep it in mind, supports the natural letting go, the natural shedding of attachment. What in my field of experience, what's here and now, right now, in the immediacy of my experience, what do I need to keep in mind that is the supporting cause for letting go? And so the four instructions, so remember in the handout, um, I'll put it again in the chat for people in the Zoom world and for people here in the building, you can get this Google Doc. Just go to the calendar, the public calendar, look for the Sunday morning program. We always have the link to the Google Doc and there's some nice articles, including the cheat sheet where you get the 16 steps. So 13, 14, 15, 16. Um, 13, just give the direct translation. So one trains oneself, I'll breathe in, observing, or you could say experiencing impermanence. So it doesn't matter whether we're aware of something visual or auditory, tactile, mental activity, what we're keeping in mind, and you know, impermanence, you, you have to really understand what the Buddha means by the word anicca, is the Pali word. Impermanence, changing nature, the ephemeral, insubstantial, unreliable, nature of a sight, of a sound, of a thought, of an emotion, of a sensation, of a smell and taste. The interesting thing, you know, we live in a world, although we haven't probably, it isn't our ongoing perception, but actually everything is always in motion. But because we're pretty much addicted to our thoughts about our experience, thoughts create the perception that things are more substantial and static than they are. Like when I have the thought, the concept, mark, me, that feels substantive, right? But there's nothing about the experience of me that's solid or permanent or static. It's like whatever mark is, whatever I am, is a changing process. Does that make sense, at least intellectually? So then, then you know, the way that wisdom works, the deepening of wisdom, we need some information, conceptual information, like there is nothing fixed anywhere. Never has been, never will be. Thoughts are ephemeral, sensations are ephemeral, there's nothing but movement, but change. So if that makes sense intellectually, then we need to start to contemplate it, as we do everything we do in life. We still go through the motions, we still fulfill our duties and responsibilities, raise our kids, become a good pa uh, parent or partner or friend or employee or whatever. But all the way through, we're interested we're keeping in mind the impermanent nature, the fluid, insubstantial, changing nature. 
we have a really unpleasant feeling and we're curious, is this static? Is this real in some kind of permanent way or is it also in motion? Well, no, it's changing. It was like this, now it's like this. It did used to be, now it is, it will eventually not be. It's really important when we remember back, like this is the contemplation. So the first stage is to get the information. The second is to memorize it enough so you can contemplate it. You take the information and you regurgitate it in your own mind and you use the regurgitated information that you've memorized to meet your own present moment experience. To use it to transform how you perceive, how you connect and open to your own experience, of you know, the immediacy of your own experience. And that sets in motion the third part of wisdom, which is insight, a surprising opening so the mind is seeing or experiencing something it hasn't seen or experienced before. Because it got new information, memorized it, regurgitated, reflected on it, kept it in mind, kept using it to transform how it's showing up in the world, that's how real learning, real insight happens, spiritual insight. And so we go, because of our legacy, how we got conditioned of, you know, this, this very solid sense of me. I'm back here, I'm me. This is the same me that I was when I was a teenager, I'll be next year, it's me. And it's very hard, we can't think our way out of it, but we can follow this strategy, which is keeping impermanence in mind and noticing the loosening effect. And the 14th step is breathing in, one trains with oneself, I will breathe in observing dispassion, breathe out observing dispassion. We don't try to do dispassion. This sense of space, the space of non-attachment, the space, like I was saying a few minutes ago, that there's nothing here to grasp, worthy of clinging, worthy of attachment, that just dawns on the mind that has been interested in change the changing nature, the fluid. It just doesn't make so much sense. Like I caught myself, I've been traveling, came home last night and uh, looking around the house, thinking about how to improve it, you know, and then this came to mind like, yeah, there's no, one, there's no end to making it better. And uh, second is, I could be content with how it is. It's a nice place. And, uh, yeah, and it's like, uh, I can't hold on to it anyway. The house, however nice or not nice it is, isn't going to kill me or save me. And uh, it's the same with our relationships, with our partners. It's the same with our relationship with food, with everything. 
And it, you see, that's that. You, the flavor of that is what we call dispassion. So we want to pay attention to the changing nature in a way that leads to dispassion. And that's how you know you're paying attention to anicca, change, because you're noticing a lot more space in your relationship to your possessions, to your relationships. You might have actually turned out to be a better mother because it doesn't matter. You already know it can't be perfect. You're not going to be the perfect father or mother, partner, brother, sister, friend. And so you might actually, like, say, you're a soccer player if you're into the World Cup. You know, it's like even things you really care about, business, your profession, that non-attachment, that dispassion might actually free you up in ways, lighten things up in a way that improves confidence. You can just check it out for yourself. But the process is, it doesn't matter that it's functional, it's like icing on the cake that it's functional. What matters is, everything is changing, so I should be intimate with that truth. Why pre- Why live a life of pretending that things are substantial in a way that they're not? That they're solid ground in a way that they're not? What happens when we align with the way it is? Change. Oh, there's this dispassion. Well, what, a lot, what happens when we keep dispassion in mind? Well, then we have moments, here it's translated as cessation, where we actually notice the heart putting everything down. And the question is, do you know the mind, the heart, that isn't clinging, attached, holding to anything? Are you interested? Because right? in Buddhism, that's what we consider a mystical or, you know, transformative experience. A moment of realizing, oh, this mind, not somebody else's mind, but this mind, but this mind without any grasping, holding, without any freezing up, any grip whatsoever. And the thing about that experience is, it's not easily, if it's a, you know, relatively clear experience, it's not easily forgotten. Meaning, it affects the the mind is actually a mind stream. If if people did kind of get weirded out, we'd never use the word mind. We'd always say mind stream or heart stream, just to evoke that sense of change. Because the mind isn't a thing. There is no thing anywhere. It's just movement, including the mind. So the mind stream, when it has that insight doesn't forget it. So that mind stream becomes different going forward, having seen the mind, realized the mind without any grasping. And when there are enough of those insights of non-grasping, then the mind, you could say, generalizes the understanding of non-clinging. And it's non-clinging all around. So it's like there's nothing left to the habit of clinging because the insight into non-clinging has been strong and deep and persistent enough to uproot any remaining latent habits to grasp, to take things personally, to be tight about stuff. So then the life, can, you know, the activity of the body and mind continues without any latent habits 
So then you could go up to that awakened being, you know, theoretically, I'm not there yet, but you could go up to someone who's fully awakened. Your friends could conspire, well, let's try some stuff, see if we can get this person to get attached, you know, and bring out the person that they might be really attracted to, just see. Maybe they'll have a nice interaction, but without attachment, or the favorite food, or you, you insult them, or you... But it presumably, the person would navigate all those in situations without any clinging, without any friction. We don't even know what that might look like, right? But we can kind of get a sense, like in our own situations where there is some stickiness, well, what, what is it like when there's less of that stickiness? You know, when you and your partner are navigating something where there's always a bunch of stickiness, you trigger each other, but all of a sudden today, there's less of that stickiness. So we'll come back to this either next Sunday, but up for sure on the 18th. I'm going to be doing my own retreat over the next few weeks. I may be here next Sunday, I'm not sure yet, um, but somebody will be here. But when I'm back a couple more times in December, I'll continue to talk on the subject, the fourth. But today, if you're going to stay around for the small groups or have a conversation with your, with your own friend, you might just talk about places in your life where there's a lot of that friction and stickiness and places in there, your life where there's less of that friction and stickiness, like where you've internalized the possibility of non-attachment, <coughs> and that there's more of resilience to that non-attachment, like even when things get dramatic, it's like, oh, look at that, no stickiness. The mind, the way the mind, heart is showing up, responding, choosing, it's just like, all happening, nature's happening on its own, and it's creative and effective and appropriate and absent of stickiness. Well, that's cool. That's so cool. Like, what remains is, how could this become always how this heart is relating? Even the time of dying, you know, we manage that without the residual clinging, grasping, or being around somebody else who we love who's dying. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.